This is case 89 from the Shuraloku. Dongshan's No Grass. The introduction. Move and you bury your body 10,000 feet deep. Don't move and sprouts grow right where you are. You must cast off both sides and let the middle go. Then you must buy some sandals and travel some more before you'll really attain realization. The case. Dongshan said to the assembly, It's the beginning of autumn and the end of summer, and you, brethren, will go, some to the east and some to the west. You must go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. He also said, but where there is not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? Shishuang said, going out the gate, immediately there's grass. And Da Yang said, I'd say even not going out the gate, still the grass is boundless. The verse. Grass, boundless. Inside the gate, outside the gate. You see for yourself. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. Look, look, how many kinds. For the while, going along with the old tree, with the same emaciation in the cold, about to fall the spring wind into the skulls of the burning. It feels like just yesterday we entered this fall ango training period, yet we're almost two months into it. And before we blink, we are concluding it. And so in recognizing how quickly it goes by, it becomes very important to stop to reassess, to examine what have we done thus far? How is my practice? How about the commitments I made? How am I maintaining them, if at all? How much vigor is there in my practice? So let's assume that we all enter training periods with strong determination and sincere hearts. What is it that corrodes our resolve over time? What gets in our way? What is it that makes the difference between entering with full vigor and then a month or two later, losing it or having it being eroded. Taiken, could you please close those two windows? So we have to ask, what kind of expectations do we have when we make commitments to challenge ourselves? To break through habitual patterns and to dissolve hindrances. How do we enter? And when we experience discrepancies between our expectations and what reality has for us or the way it unfolds. What do we learn from that? It's not just with practice, it's anything. We set foot to go on some kind of journey, 
some kind of an endeavor. What do we expect to find? Is it realistic to know or to think that we know what we're going to find? Is it realistic to think that we know how to meet it when it shows up, before it shows up? How do we practice in a realistic, tangible, real way? Not just being excited to take on an endeavor. How do we make it real? You know, it's very common for practitioners to express frustration about a particular challenge and then claim that what they have to work with is either more difficult or simply different than what they expected when they first took on that particular practice. But as reality goes, we really don't know what tomorrow brings. And so it's completely unrealistic to claim that we can actually know what kind of challenges we may encounter, what kind of people we're going to run into, and what they will bring with them for us to practice. Or we can know how and when circumstances change. I see this often in Aikido, when beginners train for two, three, four months, they express frustration about the way practice goes, about the way they feel clumsy, about not getting it. And I ask people, Do you really, did you really expect to feel different? How did you think you should, or how do you think you should experience the practice now? Is it not completely realistic to, in a way, know that you will get tricked, you will fall down, you will feel clumsy when you try to learn something, when you try to deepen, when we try to break through very persistent old habits, persistent not only in this lifetime, Habits that I was given, in a way, to work with. Lifetime after lifetime. Those are the ingredients. Those are the cards we were dealt. Should we look for another stack? Another kind of life? And when we reject and try to move away from it, from it, does it really work? And in terms of Zen training, you know, this means to not be tethered by or to the feelings of frustration, being discouraged, losing momentum, encountering what we think we should not encounter. Not now, not after sitting for a while, not after understanding this or that. No longer those kinds of challenges. Yeah, I want challenges. I understand that there will be challenges on the way, that the practice will actually bring the challenges, bring things to the forefront so I can see them and work with them. But to agree to, to take on a practice or to enter a practice period, training period, means exactly that. Means to agree to open to what we don't know or to, what, or to the way it's going to show up without thinking we will know the details of it. We do know that there will be challenges. 
So can we open up to knowing that there will be challenges while not knowing what kind of challenges there will be? Or what will they trigger in us? And it means actually to, to change our approach to hindrances, challenges, blockages. To change the way we see what we don't like. Instead of seeing it as a, as a wall they want to turn away from and look somewhere else. See it as an opportunity to grow rather than be stifled. As in the words of Walter Emerson, every wall is a door. Every wall is a door. Every challenge, every hindrance is an opportunity to grow. But it doesn't match our expectations. Not that kind of wall. Not those kinds of thorns. Not this kind of pain. So if we think we know, then what are we practicing? And if we think we know, or we, we insist on knowing, how can we grow? It's like we speak from two sides of the mouth. One is saying, I want to deepen. The other is saying, yeah, but I have my list. I have my expectations. And I'm willing to grow and challenge myself in this way. But not in that way. So really, to be truly a, a Zen practitioner, it means to agree to, to radically change everything we have come to rely on. Especially in the way we see ourselves. And the way we, our firm belief about what we think is holding us back. Right? And the way we see ourselves, actually, or what we think is holding us back, has everything to do with the way we see ourselves. If we don't see ourselves, how do we see what it is that's holding us back? How do we know it's holding us back? We have to begin that statement, I know this is holding me back. That statement has to begin or rely on a firm understanding or belief about who I think I am. I'm not saying this is holding back people. I'm saying this is holding me back. Which is okay to feel this way, but then a follow-up question, well, who are you? How do you know? How do we know? So I wanted to, to bring up this koan because and I brought it, talked about it I think a year or two ago, but I wanted to bring it up again in relation to this koan, to this sango that we're working with because it fits very well with the theme of no hindrances. And it's, it's pointing directly to the fixedness of the way we view ourselves and the way we view barriers in our lives or our expectations. It is also pointing at a, at a fallacy of our expectations in the face of reality as it is. So the purpose of such a koan is to actually mess with the solidity of our belief system. How we view ourselves, how we view our challenges, how we view reality. So this statement, Dongshan's statement, was given at the end of a three-month training period 
just as they were about to disperse. So just the last talk, as they were about to leave, Dongshan gave them a crucial advice. He said, some of you will go east, some will go west. Now that you are departing, you must go where there is not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. And grass, in our practice, in the Zen tradition, is referring to delusions. You know that. And what's better than grass? To be used for that, to describe that. Grass is boundless. We try to eradicate it. It keeps growing. We don't like it. Well, we like it when it's green. We don't like it when we call it weed. But weed is grass. We like it manicured. We like it to be pleasing to the eye. Not too soft. Not too hard. Just right and just here, and not there. But grass doesn't really care much about what we think. It just is. It does follow its own true nature, which means it doesn't do it to upset anybody. It just does what it does. So you must go to where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. So this will be, this statement, Dongshan's statement, would be the same as I would, if I would tell you today when you leave the Zendo, that you must go to a place where you will not encounter any annoying people, where your spouse, your boss, your co-worker will behave exactly the way you want them to behave. or think the way you want them to think. And a place where all your concerns, trepidations, anxieties, all of them will disappear instantly. And all hindrances will be dissolved. Where is that? Where is that place? I think that you know, most, most of us understand that the practice does not act as a magic eraser, and it doesn't do that. But I also think that maybe secretly we do still believe that it does that, or it will do that. So because there's no place where we do not encounter grass, Dongshan followed up his own advice by saying, but when there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? No, Dongshan is, is, his job is to mess with us, for sure. But he's doing so with, with such a kind heart and a sincere effort, sincere effort to show us that what we think is holding us back is in fact offering a gateway to our liberation. And he's not messing with us in the sense of saying, yeah, good luck with that. That's not what he's saying. It's, not, it's what we hear. He's not saying good luck with trying to liberate yourself. He's just asking, where is that place? Or he's asking you, what are your expectations? Are they realistic? Are they in line with reality? How do we know that this is not the place he's talking about? 
how do we know that this is not the time and the place where everything is wide open? Why do we think it will come later? And the footnote to Dongshan's statement or advice says, he's luring cats into a dry well. Now, when you tempt a cat to follow you and pretend to throw a piece of fish into a deep hole, the cat will jump in, will not be able to climb out, and will die. Which is exactly what Dongshan is trying to do. That is his intent. Not literally, experientially. In the same way that when Dongshan was asked once, when, hot, when hot, heat and cold come, what should we do? When we are pushed, challenged, what should we do? And he said, when it's cold, let it be so cold that it kills you. And when it's hot, let it be so hot that it kills you. This is a similar statement to what he's saying here, what he's trying to do here. And he's pushing us to open our eyes wide and to look and to examine. Is it really holding anyone back? Is anybody held back? What does it mean to be held back? What does it mean to encounter a wall? And how does it feel when we back away from it? Or how does it feel when we close our eyes and create an imaginary version of, imagined version of reality? I mean, it's not, it's not, we're not making it up when we say that the reasons we're stuck in life originate in the way life manifests. We truly feel this way. So this is why we have to re-examine what we truly believe is going on. He's not telling us to swap one belief with another. We do believe that we are stuck because of the way life shows up, because of people around us, because of our financial circumstances, our jobs, looks, age, talents, lack thereof, or the way our karma manifests. But if we look deeply, if and when we look deeply, we can see that all those things we point at are in constant flux. They are constantly moving and shifting and changing in reality, not in our mind. In our mind, they are fixed. In reality, they are alive and they are moving all the time. So how can that which is shifting and moving and changing be firm and hold us back? How is it possible? It's possible as long as we think it's possible. That's what gives it solidity, life, validity. Without that, what is it? What is it? So in luring us to our own demise, as in luring cats to a dry well, 
Dongshan simply echoes the words of the Buddha's teaching in the Diamond Sutra. A Bodhisattva does not create a perception of a self, a being, a life, or a soul. Or anything else. A Bodhisattva does not create any perception. And when perceptions are not created, nothing is being solidified. In fact, all solidified objects, all static becomes or seen as dynamic. The entire world is seen as it is in constant flux. So when he says, but when there, there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? He's say, is he saying that there is no such a place and no way to get there? Or is he saying that it is beyond space and time? And outside of cognition, a place of no place, a time of no time. And a place of no place is everywhere. Everywhere. There are no borders, no gaps, no separations. And a time of no time is eternity. And a you of non-you. A you of non-you. A you that consists only of non-you elements. He's not making it up. He didn't read it in a book and sharing it with his sangha. Those statements came from deeply looking into what's, what we think is holding us back. A few weeks ago, I talked about Dongshan and the way he was trapped, traveling, looking for the right teacher, for the right Sangha, walking around with many questions, That's how we came up with that. Those statements come from their own realizations. And the state from which he was speaking is a state of pure potentiality, which cannot be hindered since it's formless and timeless. And it's all-inclusive, which means it includes us feeling hindered by life itself. So what is hindering us? What is hindering the awareness? What is preventing us from seeing that we are indeed, in fact, timeless? In the Buddha's teachings of the five hindrances, he describes five ways in which we feel stuck or become stuck. And those five hindrances are five mental states that arise in us and hinder our ability to develop a deeper understanding, create further unease by the fact that they show up and we follow them, and they bear a negative effect on all aspects of our lives. And the Pali term for hindrance is Nivana Nani, which actually means to cover or overwhelm. 
It makes sense because it does cover reality as it is. And it, we do become overwhelmed by the rising sense of being held back. So speaking about the five hindrances, the Buddha said, these five are obstacles, hindrances that overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. Which five? Sensual desire is an obstacle, a hindrance that overwhelms awareness and weakens discernment. Ill will, sloth and drowsiness, restlessness and anxiety, uncertainty is also an obstacle, a hindrance that overwhelms awareness and weakens discernment. When a monk has not abandoned, abandoned these five obstacles, when he is without strength and weak in discernment, it is possible for him or her to understand that it is for his own benefit. What is the benefit of others? To understand what is for the benefit of both. To realize a superior human state a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. And there are two analogies for the five hindrances that are, I find very clear. Suppose there were a river flowing down from the mountain, going far, its current swift, carrying everything with it. And a person would open up channels on the side of the river leading away from it on both sides so that the current in the middle of the river would be dispersed, diffused, and dissipated. It would not go far. Its current would be swift, and it would not carry, wouldn't be swift, and it would not carry everything with it. To imagine a river that is flowing with a lot of vigor, flowing fast, and then you, you dig channels on the right and left of that river. And then some of the water is going to the right and going to the left. The current is weakened. And the river weakens. And in the same way, we get distracted. Our ability to focus, to stay alert, to stay present, weakens. Our energy is taken away by the hindrances. And then there's another uh, example. The Sangharava Sutra compares our practice and meditation to trying to see our reflection in the surface of water or in a pail. When we're caught in a sense desire, it's like the water is made opaque with dyes and other substances when we are caught in ill will or anger, it's like the water is boiling. We're caught in sloth and torpor. It's like the water is covered over with algae and slime. It's a good way to describe laziness. We're caught in restlessness and worry. It's like the surface of the water is ruffled by the wind. Finally, when we're caught in uncertainty, it's like the water is not only turbid from being stirred up, the whole pail is hidden away from our eyes in the dark. So the first one, sensual desire, craving. And it says that this hindrance refers to our craving, the craving of physical, emotional, and mental pleasures. And includes sex, comfort, entertainment, experiences, or wanting to accumulate experiences, status, and any other consumption that is driven by our insatiable hunger for more. Hungry ghost. Poverty mind. Common terms in Buddhism. And this one is the desire for anything that touches one of our six senses. Sight, smell, touch, taste, feeling, thought, memories, emotions. And the second one is ill will, or feelings of aversion, animosity, hatred, bitterness, 
And this is referring to how we push away and resist what we don't like. How we develop aversion to experiences, situations, people, a job, or life itself when it does not go the way we think it should go. When life or the way it shows up does not meet me, my desire, my wants. So we get upset. We retaliate. And sometimes we think the more upset I am, the higher the chance that life will obey me. Or the louder I yell. Maybe the more people I show how angry I am. The first, those first two hindrances can be seen in the second noble truth. We are discontent and dissatisfied because of our attachments. Now, perpetual state of discontentment is born out of our attachment and desire, running towards what we want and trying to escape what we don't. The third one, sloth and torpor. Sloth refers to our unwillingness to strive, and torpor refers to how it infects the mind and body with a general sense of laziness. I think we all can, we all know what that means, or how it shows up in our lives. A lazy body and a dullness of mind in practice and everyday life. Meaning on the cushion and off the cushion. And what I've said many times is that if, if we don't tighten up, we end up loosening up. So there's no in-between. If we don't direct our efforts towards awakening towards tightening up, towards cultivating vigor in our life, in our practice, we are going in the other direction. That is the tendency. There's something in us that wants to slack off. It's neither good or bad, it's just is. There's something in us that will look for ways to chill out, to not do so much. Or maybe to do only when others are looking. So maybe we get something out of it. But by ourselves, how is it? How much vigor is there? How much determination? can we come up with? Can we develop? <clears throat> Some time ago, I gave a talk about, um, in one of the talks, I described uh, three mountain climbers that went to climb one of the most difficult mountains in the world. It was about emotional resiliency. And uh, the lead climber said something that fits very well here. He said, enlightenment is not found on a soft pillow and a full stomach. A soft pillow and a full stomach makes us, make us drowsy. That's sloth and torpor. That's laziness. You know, to... to to really practice, to really want to awaken or to want to practice Zen means to practice all the time, means to put it in front of us all the time. Not just on weekends. And to, it also means to practice everything, as I mentioned this morning when we began to practice using all the ingredients of our lives. And of course, especially the ones we want to throw away. I mean, we, of course, it's easy to practice with what we like. But what about the other ingredients? Are there, how do I know that they are less conducive 
to my practice. So to, to actively stay engaged, that will be the antidote to this hindrance. In the Eighth Awareness, says, the Buddha talked about, he said, he called this exerting meticulous effort. Exerting oneself meticulously and unceasingly in various beneficial practices is called meticulous effort. Be precise, not careless. Go forward, do not regress. If you, practitioners, exert meticulous effort, nothing will be difficult to accomplish. Therefore, you should make an effort to practice carefully. For when water flows constantly against a big rock, even a small amount of water will eventually wear a large hole. But if one who practices becomes lax, it will be impossible to accomplish anything. It's like trying to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together. If you stop rubbing before the wood gets hot enough, you will never start a fire. That's called meticulous effort, constant effort. The fourth one is restlessness and worry. And this is describing a general state of being restless and worried, which results in either lamenting or regretting what happened in the past, or obsessing about the future in some way. And of course, cultivating presence is the antidote. You know, it's interesting, if you, if you look at what we, what we think makes make us worry, or how does worry persist? Right now, at this second, it has nothing to hold on to. Right now, at this second, it, is, it does not exist. It's almost like we have to stop and think, okay, what am I worried about? I forgot, I should remember. I should remind myself, I'm actually worried. I should not be content because tomorrow, because yesterday, then we fill in the blank. But if you bring it directly back to this, there is nothing to worry about and there are no hindrances. It's just that it is extremely difficult for us to stay here. Well, not only difficult, it's actually terrifying often for us to stay here because we can't find anything that we can identify with. So we look for something and we find something to worry about. So to keep coming back to just this, not knowing what this is, yet keep coming back. The fifth one is doubt. Not the great doubt. This is actually skepticism or mistrust. And it's referring to losing trust in practice, in a teacher, in a sangha. Thinking the practice is not working for me. Now I don't see the point of sitting every day, studying koans, practicing with the sangha, coming to events. I have something else to do. I'll do a little bit. Who is saying that? Watch, just watch. When you look at something that you are debating about whether to attend or not, there are different voices in there. One voice will try very hard to sway you, to take you away from that. There's another voice, sometimes very faint, maybe not competing with anything, not competing because it does not need to compete, because it knows that the other kind of voice is also within that original voice. 
So to lose trust, and again, it's natural. All of it is absolutely natural to us as human beings. So we do lose trust. And that's not a problem by itself. The question is, what do we have to do to deepen the trust? What do we have to do to create clarity of mind? What do we have to do to come back? So in terms of practice, the five hindrances are considered barriers that can impede our ability to deepen samadhi and awaken. And what we need to do is develop skillfulness in working with our barriers. They're not wrong. Just misguided. And Buddhist teachings outline three aspects that are essential for developing such skillfulness. First one, remember to stay alert, aware, and fully engaged with life as it unfolds on a momentary basis. Stick around. Go nowhere. Stay alert, aware. That's all that is. It's just about the flashlight. Make sure you have batteries in there. Make sure you're seeing clearly, or as clear as you can. The second one, remembering to recognize the skillful and unskillful qualities that arise in the mind. So what is the flashlight shining light on? First one is about the flashlight. Now, what is it shining on? Watch what is skillful and what is, well, remember what is skillful and what is unskillful. Watch what arises in your mind. What we do in Zazen. And the third one, remember how to effectively abandon, and this is actually a word that Buddha used in terms of dealing with our hindrances, to abandon, not to reject, to abandon. To not give them life. So remember to abandon the qualities that get in the way of concentration, of developing samadhi, and develop the skillfulness, the skillful qualities that promote it. That's the power of wisdom. Wisdom knows what to abandon and what to nurture. We don't. That's why we go astray. Wisdom does. So to see, to learn to see what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is skillful and what is unskillful. You know, the ability to see is everything. Just develop the ability to see. Then you will know what to go or where not to go, what to do or what not to do, when to open up the mouth and when to keep it shut, when to have an expression on the face or when to have no expression at all. Be poker face. Do not allow this to take over the face. Yeah, but I'm bothered by... Uh, stop. Stop. Right there. Stop. Go back. Take a look. Where does it come from? What is, what is it serving? What is it perpetuating? And those three simple aspects can be applied on and off the cushion. But we also need to recognize the underlying characteristic that also curtail, can potentially curtail our efforts. When we encounter difficulties or barriers in our lives, we have this sense of it's wrong, it should not be. It doesn't match my expectation. 
We have to watch that. Well, like, like everything else. Just watch it. It's neither wrong nor right. It's just is. It's neither for nor against. It's just the moment, the, the, just the, the way the moment shows up at that time. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. And when we learn to allow it to subside and not go with it, something else develops. A different kind of power. And so to, to wake us up from the unrealistic expectation that life should be different. Dongshan says, but when there is not inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? And it says, the footnote says, once a word is uttered, a team of horses cannot overtake it. In other words, we can't avoid creating complications. Deal with it. Work with it. But don't expect to not encounter challenges, to not encounter barriers, hindrances. Or don't expect them to dissolve at a, at a specific particular time or time frame. Just examine, well, examine who is hindered rather than what it is that I think is hindering me. Well, it'd be a better question. Who is hindered? So two other, later on became teachers, two other characters commented on this. Shishuang said, going out the gate, there's already grass. And Dayang said, even here, the grass is boundless. Which is taking it further and further and further, or deeper and deeper and deeper, realizing that whatever we do, move or don't move, you're buried in grass. So no place to escape, as the footnote says to this, there is no place for you to escape. And that's the good news. That is the good news. The good news is realizing escape doesn't work. I cannot run away. So what do I do when I can't run away? Stop, sit down, look, examine, work with it, open it up, give it space, learn to be skillful, As it says in the introduction, move and you bury your body 10,000 feet deep. Don't move and sprouts grow right where you are. You must cast off both sides and let the middle go. So don't fall to either side. Clarity or being deluded. Realization or delusion. Don't run away from this. Chase that. Cast off both sides and then let the middle go too. Because there's just this and here everything is included. And then it ends with saying, you must cast off both sides and buy some sandals and travel some more before you really attain realization. At the beginning, we think we are traveling from delusion to realization. Then we realize. Then we realize that delusion is included. Then we let go of both delusion and realization. True realization is not what we think. It has nothing to do with what we think. 
Maybe because it includes everything. And it's not what we want to hear. The verse says, grass boundless. Footnote says, below no bottom, to the sides, no border. Wide open. Inside the gate, outside the gate, you see for yourself. A very important line. You see for yourself. Because no one else can do it. Nobody will wake up for you. Nobody will do the work you need to do. Nobody will face the pain you need to face. Nobody will see through your own challenges. And they vary. They differ. All of us, we have different challenges. Sometimes people say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. True. But so what? I don't need to know what you go through. You need to know what you go through because you need to work on it. What do you want from me? Why should I know what you go through? Right? Why should you know what I go through? It's the amazing thing about practice. We don't rely on anybody else. We, can, we have full access to what we need to practice all the time, 24 hours a day. So to say, you don't know what I'm going through, is really to abdicate responsibility. Because until you know what I'm going through, I'm not going to do anything. Very common, actually. At least that's commonly what I hear, or what Dharma teachers hear. To set foot in the forest of thorns is easy. Of course it's easy. Easy to get. We do it with our eyes closed. To turn the body outside the luminous screen is hard. And the footnote says the clear ground fools people. Realization fools people as a concept. Actually, even as an experience, it can be a trap. Because it's clear. And we get trapped by that. Because the second after, there come the grass. There comes the grass and there come the many people that I thought will behave differently. It says, look, look. And the footnote to that says, tasks can't be done too carefully. There's not too much attention. So I'm done. I've developed a lot of samadhi and attention. I'm good to go. Get new sandals. Travel some more. For a second, ever, never think you have arrived somewhere. Ever. This is lifelong practice. As long as you breathe, you practice. How many kinds? I'm still on the verse. How many kinds? And then the footnote says, Before the withered tree, the diverging paths are many. Before the, the tree withers, which is before we dry up completely, through and through, there are many options. I can go there, I can go there, I can do this, I can give up that, I can try this one, talk to this guy. There are many options. And all those options actually have to wither before we can see clearly. Rather than jump from one thing to another. As many of us do. For a while, going along with the old tree with the same emaciation in the cold, about to follow the spring wind into the skulls of the burning. It's amazing, amazing lines. They go to the heart of what practice is about or how it manifests. 
and they show us exactly what we don't want to hear. About to follow the spring wind into the skulls of the burning. And, and the commentary says, if you keep sitting in the clouds, the source is not marvelous. Or if you keep looking for that in the clouds, the source is dead. So to follow the spring wind into the skulls of the burning means to go to where everyone is. Well, everyone, but also mostly to go to what we try to escape. And to use those ingredients to awaken. Rather than allow those ingredients to control us. Or to rule the day. No, we, ha we really have this, and I, I, I hear it a lot, we have this expectation that if we practice for a while, everybody will understand and then we will not have to deal with all those deluded people, quote-unquote. I just want to deal with awakened people. How come he's doing this, she's doing that, don't they understand? I see clearly. I'd say look again at both statements. They should know better or I have clarity. I get it. Sometimes people say it in Aikido, oh, I got this one, I know this technique. I tell them, great, because I'm still practicing it. We don't know anything and we don't have to know anything. And in fact, when we realize that we don't have to, do, to know anything, Things start to move and flow a lot better. So we have to go to the depth of it. We have to go to what we try to reject and run away from. Delusions are great. Maybe you've heard otherwise, but they are wonderful. Wonderful ingredients for deepening, for awakening. The poet William Blake wrote, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Now our practice is always encouraging us to not reject anything and use all the ingredients in our lives for the sake of awakening. So in working with hindrances, and simply observing them as they arise, we can learn to not solidify or follow them and transmute poison into medicine. We can also transmute medicine into poison in the way we use it or use the, the Dharma as poison. So both are possible, but that's not the practice, that's not what we need to practice. So to transmute barrier, or to see barrier as a gateway rather than a, and a wall. You know, in Buddhism, greed, anger, and ignorance are known as the three poisons, but also considered, as you've heard many times, the three hidden treasures. Since they show us two things, how we get stuck and how we get unstuck. How we cause harm, and how we can do good. And it's all in us. Available like this, instantly, manifest. There's a story about, a famous story about Hakuin and a samurai. A warrior came to Hakuin and asked, is there such thing as heaven and hell? Hakuin said, who are you? The warrior replied, I'm the chief samurai to the emperor. Hakuin said to him, you, a samurai with a face like this, you look like a beggar. At this, the warrior became so angry, he drew his sword. Standing calm in front of him, Hakuin said, here open the gates of hell. Perceiving the master's composure, the soldier put the sword back in the sheath and bowed. Hakuin then said, here open the gate of heaven. <laughs> 
It's all in you. What do you want to nurture? What do you want to follow? What are you following right now? We'll end with a very fitting verse by Rumi. It's called the guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows and violently, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them all in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond.